At the very end of John chapter 7, we read, Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, and all the people gathered round him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were asking this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard him began to go away one at a time, the older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Amen. Over these past few weeks, we've been uh, working our way through John's Gospel. It's got lots of stories of changed lives. We've already come across uh, a scholar, a five-time divorcee. We're coming to a couple of blind men and then a little tax collector from Jericho. Each of them was burdened with baggage, the, the luggage of life, suitcases of discontentment, backpacks full of shame and regret, duffel bags overflowing with weariness and rejection, a satchel of greed and ill-gotten gain, but each one of them laid down their baggage at the feet of Jesus, and their lives were changed by the encounter. I think looking at these lives gives us hope, because we find ourselves in the same situations. We may be caught up in the grip of bad choices or living in the backwash of failure. We may be outstanding members of the community, but sense an emptiness and life that possessions and position can't fill. The good news is, Jesus can change us no matter our situation in life. He can give us peace and hope, and perhaps most importantly, grace. And if anyone can tell you about grace, it's this woman in the story today. Lots of modern translations have an insert saying that this particular passage wasn't written by John. It's found in lots of the ancient manuscripts, either inserted where we read it in chapter 8 or elsewhere in John's gospel, but it seems to be missing from the oldest versions. And the suggestion is that at some point, somebody has inserted it into John's story. We don't know if it was him. We don't know if it was somebody else. But I think the Holy Spirit has set aside a place in Scripture for this story because in many ways, her story is our story. And the story of the teachers of the law had promoted themselves to keepers of the law. And the Pharisees appointed themselves prosecutors. They turned the temple courtyard into a courtroom. 
and together they presented their case to Jesus. And they were hoping that he would play the role of judge. But as we examine the story more closely, we'll find out that just wasn't ever going to happen. So we have her accusers. I don't know if you have ever been caught in the act of doing something you know fine well you shouldn't have been doing. It's embarrassing. Whether it's a child literally with their hand in the cookie jar or whatever. We know that sinking feeling of being caught. And here's this woman caught in the most humiliating of situations. In the very act, in the sexual act with, well, another man somewhere. The priests slam open the bedroom door. They throw back the curtains. They, They pull off the covers. They drag her from the bed out into the street. And who knows how far they drag her, wrapped maybe just in in some kind of sheet or cover. And eventually they get her in front of Jesus. As if raiding the bedroom, the parade of shame weren't enough, they bring her right into the middle of of a morning Bible class. Jesus is there, he's busy explaining spiritual things to God-hungry hearts. And the Pharisees come in and go, Teacher, we found this woman, we've caught her in the act of adultery. Caught in the very act, in the moment, in the arms, in the passion. Pulled from bed and pushed into the sunlight in front of Jesus and his crowd. I don't know that you'll be able to relate to that particular scenario. But your accuser may not wear a long robe, may not have an unkempt beard, but you have one nevertheless. The Bible calls Satan the accuser of brothers and sisters, the one who accuses them before our God day and night, day and night. Day after day after day, hour after hour, relentless, tireless. He makes a career out of accusing God's people. He points a narrowed finger in your direction and says, Ha, caught in the act. You did that, remember? The dishonesty, the stupidity, the selfishness, the greed, the lust. And the charges just keep piling up and up. And the worst of it is, he's not wrong. We know that. We know that. And neither were the scribes and the Pharisees. She was guilty. So are we. There's a story uh, that took place in, in San Diego Superior Court. Two men were on trial for armed robbery. And a witness took the stand And the prosecutor said, so you say you were at the scene when the robbery took place? Yes, yes, I was there, yes. And you saw a vehicle speeding away from the scene? Yes, yes, I saw that, yes. And did you see the two occupants? 
Yes, yes, two men. And the prosecutor turned away and he said, So, are these two men present in the courtroom today? At which point the two accused, thinking he was speaking to them, put their hands up (laughs) and confirmed their guilt. It might seem stupid, but we might as well do the same thing. We are guilty and we know it. Satan knows it and God knows it. We might as well simply raise our hands and admit it. This scantily clad woman in the midst of the crowd was in the same boat. She was guilty and her accusers made sure that everybody knew it. But here's the hypocrisy. How did they know? How long had they been following and watching the woman? How long had they been listening so that they knew when to burst in to catch her in the act? Why did they have to drag her through the streets? And just as importantly, where was the man who was also guilty? Why was only her they brought? Fortunately, they didn't get the last word. Because Jesus stepped down from the judge's bench and became her advocate. The world tells us that in order to show love, we must accept and tolerate whatever comes our way. Scripture teaches us that we're actually not to conform to the world. So when we're told that something is right, when we we absolutely know it's wrong. And the world says, we've got to tolerate. Actually, what we have to say is, no, I'm sorry. God says something different. We need to stay true to God's word and to live in holiness. There's a story about President Calvin Coolidge, who was a man of very few words. One Sunday after returning home from church, his wife, Mrs. Coolidge, funnily enough, asked him, what was the sermon about today? And Coolidge replied quite sharply, sin! Well, what did he say about it, Calvin, she asked, to which he said, He's again it. He's again it. <laughs> that basically tells us what God thinks about sin. He's again it. The Bible reveals the motives behind this drama when it says they were trying to trap Jesus into saying something they could use against him. It was the true that the Old Testament commands the Jews to stone an adulterer. So if Jesus disagreed, they'd accuse him of disregarding and disobeying Scripture. On the other hand, the Jews were currently under Roman occupation and they didn't have the authority to execute someone. And so if Jesus said that they should stone her, they'd accuse him of insurrection. And so Jesus refused to play their game. In fact, it says he ignored them. He stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Now I've said often over these weeks, there are times when we just don't get told enough. Right? There are times when you want the Bible just to be a wee bit more uh, explicit and, and, and give, a, give an explanation. What on earth was he writing? I mean, it drives you daft when you think about these things. What, what, you know, and there's all sorts of theories about what was said there. The prosecutors, they didn't like being snubbed, so they kept, they kept on and on and on. Tell us, Jesus, tell us, Jesus, what are we going to do? And eventually... He stood up, and I think that's important. He stood up 
right in front of them and said, okay, let the one who has never sinned, who's never done anything wrong, throw the first stone. And I can imagine one by one, probably starting with the oldest folk who have a bit more sense about them, would just drop their stone. Because they know. We all know. The silence broken by the dull thuds of stones falling to the ground. Jesus lifted himself erect, standing in front of them, lifting his head high. He stood up for that woman. And he does the same for us. In the message version of Romans chapter 8, verse 34, it says this, the one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment, sticking up for us. What an amazing thing. We don't have to do it for ourselves. Jesus is there standing up for us before his Father. In defiance of Satan, Jesus is defending you and me before God. And he does that whether we deserve it or not. He knows that we're guilty. And we stand before him just as that woman did. He sees our dishonesty. He sees our adultery, our angry outbursts, our hypocrisy. He sees the pornography. He sees it all. And he sticks up for you anyway. Before the sentence could be handed down, Jesus stood up and stepped in. And that brings us to the last part of the story, her acquittal. One of the most abused words in the English language is tolerance. The world teaches us to show love, as I said earlier, when actually sometimes we just have to say no. But the culture today says that if we fail to tolerate and embrace sinful behavior, then we're bigots. The Bible says we're not to conform but we're to stay true to God's word and to live in holiness. He says, be holy as I am holy. But one by one, the accusers slip away until it's just Jesus left alone with the woman. And then you get that exchange when he says to her, women, where are they? Has no one judged you guilty? And she says, no. And he says to her, then I don't judge you guilty either. Go and stop sinning. Ironically, when Jesus said, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone, that narrowed the potential executioners to just one, to him. And he was never, ever going to throw the stone. As God in flesh, he was the only one qualified to pass judgment and he refused to do it. I don't think it makes him soft on sin. I think it makes him huge on grace. 
Earlier this week, I read the story of a youngster who, who had been given a, a sling, you know, a catapult. And he wasn't very good with the aim, right? Because he was just learning. He was just wee. And he, he kept missing stuff. And he came into, uh, he was with his granny, and he came into their back, her backyard, and here was the pet duck. And he thought, well, I've missed everything else. So he takes the stone, and of course he hits the duck, and he kills the duck. So he panics, and he hid the duck in a pile of wood, only to look up and see his big sister watching everything that had happened. Well, after lunch, Gran says, Johnny, it's your turn to do the, to do the dishes. Okay, okay. Then after tea, she says to the sister, it's your turn to do the dishes. So no, no, Gran. Johnny was telling me earlier how much he wanted to do the dishes. Don't you? And she leaned over and whispered, remember the duck. And for days on end, Johnny get this wee voice in his ear, remember the duck. Until eventually, Johnny had had enough and he went to his gran and he said, Gran, I killed the duck. And she went, I, I know. I saw you. <laughs> I was watching. I forgive you. So why did you not say anything? So I just wondered how long you would let her enslave you. Satan does that to us. Remember the duck. Remember the time you. Remember when you. You, you think you're good enough. Why would anybody trust you? What's the point in starting that? Because you always fail. Remember the duck. Remember all your flaws, all your faults, all your failures. You're useless. You're hopeless. Unlike the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings to us, Satan's condemnation is designed to knock us down and to keep us down. There's no thought of repentance. There's no thought of hope. There's no thought of resolve. There's just regret when it comes to Satan. And he has deputized a horde of people and things to help peddle his poison. Friends that dredge up your past. Preachers who are all guilt and no grace. Please don't listen to those voices of condemnation and accusation because there is an advocate who declares on your behalf. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Therefore, there is now 
no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So why do we allow ourselves to be condemned? Because Christ has overcome. The message version puts those same verses like this. With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air freeing you from a fated lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. Isn't that good? Has freed you and me from a fated lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. Max Lacado, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, talks about this story. And he says that that when he's thinking about Jesus writing in the dust, he says, I wonder if it simply said, grace happened here. It did. And it still does. We don't know what happened to that woman after this story. Again, it'd be quite nice if the Bible would just give us a clue. I'm sure her life was changed. How could it not be after what she had been forgiven, the encounter with Jesus? It was life-changing. And I think Jesus offers every single one of us a life-changing experience when we come to him in faith. If you need to... um, talk about that or would like to talk about it. If there are things in your life that uh, you you would like prayer about, then at the end of the service, um, just in the corner over here, um, there's a little gap uh, and uh, somebody will be there. And we would love just to pray um, with you and for you. And if there are things that we as a church can do to help you to go and stop sinning, then again, we would love to talk about that and to find ways to help you with that too. Just as the children are coming in, Rachel is going to lead us in a reflection, and then we're going to sing the hymn, Amazing Grace. <laughs>